Chapter Three of Mars Is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Three. It happened so suddenly it would have taken me completely by surprise if the alarm bell hadn't started ringing again in some shadowy corner of my mind. It wasn't clamorous this time, but it was loud enough to make me straighten in alarm with every nerve alert. I was standing by a high wall of foliage close to the lakeside and had just started to light a cigarette. All at once, directly overhead, there was a rustling sound that was hard to mistake, for I'd heard it many times before, and it had a peculiar quality which set it apart from all other sounds. Something was moving through the shadows above me, rustling dry leaves, slithering down toward me with a dull mechanical buzzing the buzzing stopped abruptly and there was a flash of brightness a long-drawn whining sound i braced myself letting my arm swing loosely at my side with startling swiftness something long glistening and snake-like descended upon me and wrapped itself around my right leg just above the knee before i could shake it loose it contracted into a tight knot and the whining turned into a shrill scream, prolonged, ghastly. It was quite unlike the scream of an animal. There was something metallic, rasping about it, as if more than animal ferocity was giving voice to its pent-up rage in a shrill mechanical monotone. The constriction increased, and an agonizing stab of pain lanced up my thigh. I raised my right arm and brought the edge of my hand down with an abrupt chopping motion. I chopped downward three times, not at random, but with a calculated, deadly precision, for I knew that a misdirected blow could have cost me my life. I was in danger only for an instant, and not a very long instant at that. The damage I'd done to it caused it to release its grip on my leg, shudder convulsively and dropped to the ground damaged where it was most vulnerable it writhed along the ground with groping disjointed movements of its entire body tiny fragments of shattered crystal glistened in its wake and two long wires dangled from its cone-shaped head its segmented body case glowed with a blood-red sheen as it writhed across a flat gray stone on the edge of the lakeshore embankment and reared up for an instant like an enormous, sightlessly groping worm. Then, abruptly, all the animation went out of it, and it flattened out and lay still. Both of the optical discs, which had enabled it to move swiftly through the darkness, had been smashed. I was no longer in any danger, and it was very pleasant just to know that. Very pleasant indeed. An attempt had been made on my life. There could be no blinking the fact. That little mechanical horror, with its complex interior mechanisms, had been set upon me from a distance with all its electronic circuits clicking by remote control. From just how great a distance I had no way of knowing, but I didn't think he'd be staying around near enough for me to get my hands on him. Killers who made use of such gadgets usually kept their distance and were very cautious. But at least I knew now that I had a dangerous enemy, someone who wanted me dead, and there was nothing pleasant about that. The human mind is a very strange instrument, 
it is hard to predict just how profoundly you'll be upset by an occurrence that's difficult to dismiss with a shrug. You can either turn morbid and brood about it, or rise superior to it and pigeonhole it, at least for the moment. By a kind of miracle, I was able to pigeonhole it, to keep it from standing in the way of what I'd made up my mind to do before I'd heard the rustling in the foliage directly overhead. I walked back and forth for a moment, resting most of my weight on my right leg to make sure I could keep using it without limping, and when I was satisfied a long walk wouldn't be in the least painful, I left the embankment with a feeling of relief and took the first turn on my left. I was pretty sure it would take me no more than twenty minutes to get back to the spaceport. I knew that what I had made up my mind to do wasn't going to be easy. I had to find out exactly how important a job the colonization board had mapped out for me on Mars. She'd called me Mr. Important Man because you don't get a clearance stamp the way mine was unless there's a big undertaking in store for you which has to be handled in just the right way. The walk gave me a chance to think about it. My leg didn't trouble me at all, and I was very grateful for that. I stood for a moment just outside the spaceport's railed-off, electronically protected launching platforms, staring up at the 300-foot passenger rockets, gleaming with a dull metallic luster in the moonlight, their nose cones pointing skyward. The new Chicago spaceport has, and always will, attract sightseers, because there's no other rocket launching site on Earth that can compare with it. It's not only the largest and the most elaborately equipped. It was built to last. Fifty years from now, in 2070, say, it was a safe bet the big Mars rockets would be taking off at four-hour intervals night and day. Now they took off only twice a month, and there were 50 million people in the United States alone who would have given up comfort leisure, a well-paying job, and every joy they've ever experienced or could hope to experience on Earth to be on one of those big skyships. As far back as I can remember, I'd hated to force a showdown with people who trusted me and believed in me, and that went double for the Martian Colonization Board, whose members were doing everything possible to keep me informed. Secrecy sometimes has to be imposed, and if you try to crack an information clamp down prematurely, you deserve to be slapped down. But now I had no choice. I had to find out if my trip could be postponed. If I could wait one more week, a month even, to get Joan to see things my way. And that meant I had to find out just how big a job they had lined up for me. I had no trouble getting in to see him. There was a guard at the main entrance of the administration building, and when I identified myself, and the massive double doors swung inward, I had to go through it a second time, and six more times in all, before I reached his private office on the twentieth floor. But you couldn't call it trouble, because all I had to do was take out my wallet and display the pale blue card that was only an incitement to violence in certain quarters. In that massive, almost half-mile-long building, on every floor, there were guards who knew me and guards who had never set eyes on me before. But what that card stood for was treated with respect. I'd known that building to hum with activity, to come to life with a roar, but now only one floor blazed with light, and the rest of the building was as silent as a mausoleum. 
It happens sometimes, and when it does, everyone is grateful, including the man I'd come to visit. His private office was at the end of a long corridor in Section C-10Y, and I knew I'd find him there, because a small circle of cold light had been glowing above the office listing board on the main floor. There was a nameplate above the numbered listings, Brown. His name wasn't Brown, of course, or Smith, or Jones. The Brown was just a safety precaution. The sign and seal of immense power being modest in a genuine way, and for expediency's sake as well. No man without the kind of card I carried had ever gotten as far as that office listing board, and I doubt if the most ingenious assassin would have cared to try. But it was just as well to be on the completely safe side. A saluting guard stepped back in what was perhaps the narrowest, least impressive door in the entire building, opened and closed, and I found myself in his presence. Unless you're a Gobi desert dweller, or live in the precise middle of the Sahara, you've seen the blue-eyed, mild-mannered little man who was Jonathan Trilling on a hundred lighted screens. In all respects but one, he is the kind of man most people would go right past on the street without a second glance. The thing that made him really not like that at all was something you couldn't pin down and analyze. If you tried, you'd get nowhere. But it was there, all right. An emanation you couldn't mistake that stamped him for what he was, radiating out from him. Equate immense simplicity with immense power, and you might come up with a part of the answer. But not all of it. The office was stripped of all non-essentials. A hermit cell couldn't have been barer. And it seemed to please him when my eyes swept over the almost bare desk, with just an inkwell and a single sheet of paper on it, before coming to rest on his face. I'm pretty sure he interpreted it as an indication that I was trying to catch him up on something he took pride in. And he admired me for it, and greeted me with a chuckle. Well, Ralph, he said, I didn't expect to see you here tonight. I thought you'd be home wearing Joan's patience ragged, with the kind of last-minute preparations women never seem to understand. They like to think they never forget anything. But they do. They're worse that way than we are but just try getting them to admit it. There was only one chair in the office, and he was occupying it. I hardly expected him to get up and wave me toward it, but that's precisely what he did. Sit down, Ralph, he said. I sit too much. We all do here, I guess. Can't be helped, but it doesn't give a man of fifty-five much chance to get the exercise he ought to have, if he's going to keep his weight down. No, don't get up for me, sir, I said, then realized I was being unnecessarily formal. The chair was empty, and he expected me to take it, and I could see that he didn't like the sir. He never had. Sit down, sit down. What is it, Ralph? Something worrying you? You'll have plenty of time for that when you get to Mars. Why start now? I decided to come right out with it. I favored bluntness as much as he did, and there was nothing to be gained by talking around what I'd have to ask him before I left. There's something I'd like to know, I said. Is the major part of my assignment still under wraps, or could you tell me more about it, even if you'd prefer not to?
He looked at me steadily for a moment, his lips tightening a little. Well, I certainly haven't kept it a complete secret, Ralph. You'll get full instructions in code later on. There's naturally a reason for that. I shouldn't have to go into it, because we've discussed it at great length, right here in this office. I realize that, I said. But could you see your way clear to telling me much more than you have, if I can convince you that it would help me solve a problem I can't solve otherwise? His eyebrows went up a little at that. What kind of problem, Ralph? It's as old as the hills, I said. The really ancient kind, with fossils embedded in them. It goes right back to the old Stone Age, and maybe a lot earlier. Joan doesn't want to go to Mars. She's very stubborn, very determined about it. If I can't make her change her mind, I'll have to go alone, and I guess I don't have to tell you what that would do to me. If I just had a little more time, another week or two. So that's it, he said. You want me to tell you that your assignment can be put off, that you're not really needed on Mars. We're just sending you there because we like to do whimsical things occasionally, to break the god-awful monotony of thinking about the problems the project is confronted with in a serious way. I was startled because I had never known him to indulge in deliberate irony before. He had all the intellectual equipment for it, but his mind just didn't work that way. Then I suddenly realized he was going to tell me everything I wanted to know, and had just used that approach to make me a little angry and keep me alert and analytical, so that I wouldn't underestimate the seriousness of what he was about to say. All right, Ralph, he said. I'll risk angering a third of the board. I'm going to tell you exactly why the Mars colony is in trouble, and just how tremendous your task will be. You'll be in the middle, Ralph in the biggest clash of interests a new and growing society has ever known. A clash of interests can destroy any society, if they're violent enough and have powerful enough backing and the population is divided in its loyalties and lacks firm and courageous leadership. That's especially true if the society is on a pioneering level, with serious scarcities developing everywhere, and with every man, to some extent, at least, in fierce competition with his neighbors, all apart from the massive power monopolies that are in even fiercer competition among themselves. Don't you see, Ralph? Don't you realize what that kind of cross-purpose distribution of power in a new and pioneering society can mean? When you have a three- or four-way conflict, when everyone is bidding for what you've got and can't afford to sell, or what you haven't got but would like to sell, or what you can't sell for what you'd like to get. He smiled suddenly, for the barest instant. Then the seriously concerned look, which the smile had replaced, came back into his eyes. I didn't intend that to sound facetious. It probably did, because it has a slightly humorous side to it, like most major tragedies. I'm just giving you the broad outlines now. The general situation. Frustration... Bitterness, thousands of colonists who can be swayed one way or the other by corrupt pressures, self-interest, greedy power monopolies. But there's a more specific situation you have in mind. Is that it? I asked. Everything you've just said is common knowledge. Trilling nodded. Yes, 
but the general situation has to be underscored. It is the crucial factor in everything that is taking place on Mars. In a more stable and highly developed society, the raw power conflict of the two major power monopolies would not take so destructive a form. Two, I said. I was under the impression... He waved my objection aside. Oh, there are a dozen power combines, but only the two giants. Wendell Atomics and Endicott Fuel have fought each other to a standstill and threatened the peace and stability of the entire colony. I'm putting it too mildly. There's an explosive potential in that conflict that could destroy the colony overnight. He tightened his lips and took a turn up and down the office, then came back to where I was sitting and gripped me by the shoulder. Ralph, listen. This is vital. I'll try to sum it up as briefly as possible. You know what it costs to set up atomic generators, turbines, transmission lines, and keep utilities no city can do without in operation right here in New Chicago, in just one small section of the city. How much more do you think it costs to do the same thing on Mars? The transportation of materials alone. Have you any idea how much the total expenditures come to? I guess so, I said. I don't like to think about it. Who does? But we had to think about it. We had to give Wendell Atomics a 30-year monopoly. No other power combine had sufficient monetary resources to undertake it. And we had to give Endicott Fuel the same kind of monopoly. They transport both atomic and liquid fuels at a cost that would turn your hair white. And now you say they're locked in a power conflict. But why? I should think Wendell Atomics would purchase all the fuel it needs directly from Endicott. And Endicott would... I paused, troubled. What would Endicott do, Ralph? It has no use for atomic generators. It isn't geared to install them, even if it could somehow absorb the terrific expense of transporting them. And that, of course, would be impossible. No combine is wealthy enough to undertake that kind of two-pronged enterprise. But it wouldn't have to be a two-way exchange of commodities, I said. Not if Window continued to buy all of its fuel from Endicott. It would, of course, have a tendency to dwarf Endicott, make it the lesser of the two monopolies. It would do more than that, Ralph. It could bankrupt Endicott. You see, Wendell Atomics suddenly decided it was paying Endicott too much for the fuel it used, and cut the price it was paying in half, and Endicott could barely meet expenses. Good Lord, I said. Naturally... Wendell Atomics couldn't get along without fuel, Trilling said, and it couldn't transport fuel for its own exclusive use from Earth, the two-pronged enterprise factor again. So Endicott struck back by refusing to sell its fuel to Wendell. A complete stalemate, you mean? Not quite, Ralph. If it were, one side or the other would have to give in eventually. Endicott seized on the bright idea of selling atomic and liquid fuel directly to the colonists. A wildcat kind of madness. The colonists buy the fuel on margin and wait for the price to skyrocket. And every so often it does, because Wendell has to keep its generators operating. It won't buy from Endicott, 
but it has no choice but to buy from the colonists. Do you realize what such wild and dangerous wildcat speculation can do to a new, rough and tumble frontier kind of society, Ralph? The colonists don't know if they're rich or poor from one day to the next. And with all their desperate needs, their frustrations, their scrambling after scarce goods and services, their fierce competitiveness, they are at each other's throats half the time. I'm beginning to get the picture, I said. It's a very ugly picture, Ralph. Wendell Atomics buys its fuel sporadically. Cheats, steals, connives, beating the price down artificially, and then sending it skyrocketing again. It has its own private police force. Translate, brutal roughnecks who know exactly how to keep the colonists in line and frighten them into selling when the fuel market sags and spending every cent they possess to buy more fuel on the speculation when the price soars. Endicott doesn't care what happens to the colonists. It's out to make Wendell Atomics come to terms and has methods of its own to keep the colonists inflamed and reckless. The whole situation has even taken on a political cast. There are pro-Wendell colonists who work hand-in-glove with the Wendell police, and colonists who would willingly lay down their lives in defense of the noble, altruistic Endicott. It's the right of everyone to buy fuel on speculation, isn't it? I see, I said. And my job will be to step right into the middle of all that and try to bring order out of chaos. Trilling didn't say anything for a moment. He just looked at me, but his gaze was not unsympathetic. There's something I'd like to have you hear, Ralph, he said, when the silence had lengthened between us and become almost minute long. We have a new round-the-clock recording to replace the one we've been transmitting at intervals night and day for five years. I won't even ask you how many times you've heard it, because you travel around a lot and must have memorized it word for word. But this one is better, I think. At least it appeals to me more. A hundred million people will hear it, starting tomorrow. It will be on every telescreen. He bent over the desk and removed a miniature tape recorder from the upper right-hand drawer. He set it down on the desk and clicked it on. Just one passage I'd like you to listen to, Ralph. Not the whole recording. This is it. The voice that came from the tape was a very good reading voice. One of the best I'd ever heard. The man was probably a poet, but the words themselves interested me more. So bright with promise has man's future become that all of the old animosities, the old hates, will soon seem alien to us and strange. A new world is in the making. Who can deny it? The colonization of Mars has fulfilled the deepest instincts of man's nature, and provided scope for a growth that is as natural to him as breathing. The desire to know more, to explore the unknown, to reach out toward constantly expanding horizons, can only be satisfied by boldly accepting what the advance of modern science has brought within our grasp. The colonization of Mars is a tribute to a man's stubborn refusal to be easily discouraged, or to let mechanical difficulties, no matter how formidable, stand in his way. A tribute, as well, to his constructive genius, his daring and breadth of vision. Trilling clicked the tape recorder off, 
returned it to his desk, and turned to face me again. That, Ralph, is the dream, he said. You and I know what the reality is like, but the millions who will listen to that recording do not. They still believe, and hope. I was silent for a moment, not quite sure how he'd take what I was going to say. I went over it in my mind, searching for just the right words. It took me a full minute to find them. But he didn't grow impatient. I'm not sure the board is wise in putting out that kind of propaganda. Or any kind of propaganda. After all, we're not trying to sell Mars to anyone. We're doing something that has to be done. You might almost say we're just trying, in a very earnest way, to plug up a gap in the biggest dam that was ever built, to keep the floodwaters from carrying us all to destruction. You're wrong, Ralph, he said. It isn't just propaganda. A dream always has to go striding on ahead of reality. It may seem strange to you, but the reality does not frighten or discourage me. Mars is a new world, and on a new world there has to be, not one, but many beginnings. He paused an instant, then added, That's why we're sending you to Mars, Ralph. There will have to be another beginning. It won't show too much on the surface, no matter how successful you are. For the colony will remain what it is, basically, an experiment in survival. All of a new world's energy will remain, and the turbulence and the hard-to-endure disappointments. But you can help the colonists go back and feel the way they did when the first passenger rocket settled down on the red desert sand, 40 million miles from Earth, and the space age took on a new dimension. End of chapter 3